Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Matt Winneray, who is the Chief Executive Officer of New Zealand Super. And today we're celebrating 20 years of the fund. Matt, congratulations on this milestone. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Excellent. So there's a couple of dates that we can take for this 20 years. Um, I think the New Zealand Super Innovation and Retirement Income Act was passed in 2001. And that set up the structure of what is now New Zealand Super. But it wasn't until 2003 that the fund received its first contribution, which I thought was um, 2.4 billion New Zealand dollars, and started investing later that year. So it's actually in, I think, October this year that we have a 20-year track record of the fund. Is that right? And can you share some of the uh, learnings from that period? That is right. Yes. So uh, it took a bit of uh, work between the passing of the legislation in 2001 and, and kicking off. So getting a team, getting the team together uh, and those those uh, aboard and those first few people that were were involved. That's right. We got the money on 30 September 2003. Uh, I, I understand it. Actually, we, we invested almost straight away, some of it anyway, uh, and had got set up to, to be ready to do that. So, yeah, it's been a big, a big moment for us uh, taking over uh, 20 years and an opportunity at that point to sort of reflect on on how we've changed since then. And we've changed quite significantly, uh, but also what we've learned. Uh, so from a, from a lesson perspective, I guess um, probably the most important ones are get the get the long-term risk setting right, uh, understand how you think that might perform along the way, and then spend as much time as possible making sure that the stakeholders understand that, and so how it might how it why you've done that, and and how it might operate. Uh, as as an investor, we think about our as a long horizon investor. We think about our, our key risks as being two big ones, liquidity, so running out of liquidity is pretty terminal, and stakeholder support. And so uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we manage those in order to be able to get to the long term. Because if you're a long horizon investor, you care about what the return is over the long term. But if you cannot survive the journey, the destination doesn't matter. So, so we think hard about those. Uh, and the other, one of the other critical foundational things that we've done is, is being really clear about what our advantages are as an investor. So 
we call these endowments. We don't have a lot of advantages, but they are important. So things like long horizon, uh, our operational independence, our governance, our strong governance model, and our sovereign status are all critical. And aligning our investment strategy with those endowments and with really clear investment beliefs is really important as well. So those are those are sort of the big things that we've we've learned along the way. We didn't we certainly didn't know them all at the start, uh, and we found out as as we've gone along. New Zealand Super always has a, a strong focus on on governance, but of course we also would like to know the numbers. Have you crunched the numbers for the twenty year track record? Uh, yeah, we're about nine point five percent per annum over that over that twenty years, and I guess most critically. Uh, from a from a national perspective, uh, the the country is more than forty billion dollars better off as a result of the creation of of the super fund. So if you think about the alternative use of our of the contributions we have received, would have been to uh, pay down government debt. We have uh, we have beaten that benchmark by more than forty billion dollars. Uh, and within that forty billion, we've also added about sixteen billion dollars of value over our risk equivalent benchmark, our reference portfolio, which we'll get onto later on. But uh, yeah, so we've we're, we're very happy with how those how those numbers have turned out. Excellent. Of course, governance is really important. But when we look at sort of uh, the investment approach, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know the early days in terms of the asset classes that the fund started with and how that has uh, evolved over time? Sure. So in our in our right at the outset, we were um, a pretty traditional SAA approach. We had in that. Uh, global equities, uh, New Zealand equities as a separate asset class, uh, and global was both developed in emerging markets, uh, global fixed income, and then we we also had a reasonable, reasonably significant allocation to private market assets. So those were in those days uh, private equity, timber, infrastructure, property. When I turned up in two thousand and eight, we had this other category. That was called other private markets, which was kind of whatever else we found that was kind of interesting. Uh, and so we had a pretty big allocation to that to that private markets in that early SAA. But I, th- I think right from the outset, we've had a pretty growth oriented portfolio. So it might have started at about sort of 70, 30, uh, moved to 80, 20. And then our reference portfolio has been 80, 20 since since we implemented that. Uh, which was about seven years into our into our operation. So we've always we've always sought to take advantage of our long horizon and our relative lower need for liquidity and uh, allocated across uh, those broad range of asset classes. Yeah, is is that why the fund started relatively early investing in private equity? Because I think I looked it up and it was only two years after the fund started investing that the first private equity investment was was already made. Yes, yeah, so we had some small uh, private equity fund of funds earlier on, and some secondary a uh, secondary fund and a more traditional GP commitment. Uh, that was part of that that SAA allocation. So we, as a result of that that original construct of the SAA, the team uh, was focused on on private markets. That that allocation to private markets was about thirty five percent in the in the early versions of the SAA. So a pretty chunky one. Uh, and so the team, the team got on with with thinking about how we could, how we could um, gain that exposure. So, what was the inspiration for that? Was that sort of, you know, a lot of the the Australian funds look at the Canadian peers, and they obviously have a, a very heavy allocation to private assets, or was it more that long term investment horizon? 
Uh, well, it was definitely a long-term investment horizon, but I think early on, the some of the um, the people in the or the investment people in the organisation certainly also looked at not just the Canadian pairs, but also some of the US endowment uh, models as well, which had significant significant exposure to uh, private equity in particular. And I think right at the outset as well, we were we were almost we were entirely outsourced. You know, when we kicked off, we're obviously using external managers. Uh, and that was the approach that that was taken to get exposure to some of those different uh, asset classes that were included in the SAA. I think one of the things that really sets New Zealand Super apart is the strategic tilting program. That is not not, not something that you see, especially not at the scale that I think uh, New Zealand Super has implemented it. Can you tell me a little bit about you know the philosophy behind it and, and why it was chosen? Uh, to implement that, because I think it it first started in 2009, so about six years after the fund first started investing, which was relatively quick. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the philosophy. Sure. So uh, the strategic tilting came out of a lot of work done by our asset allocation team under the leadership of Neil Williams. So Neil had been in um, in the asset allocation team at UBS Asset Management. Uh, and worked with a couple of other guys, a guy called Brian Singer and Renato Staub uh, there. And he had brought with him this um, this thinking around the dynamic asset allocation approach. And the idea of it for us was, was to take advantage of our belief that we can have a, a more constant relative risk aversion than the market. So as the market gets excited or the market gets depressed, uh, and we have a if we have a long run view of the equilibrium value of a particular asset class, then as it gets depressed, we can we can add exposure, or as it gets excited, we can we can reduce exposure, and do that in a systematic way. So what we're trying to do is remove our own behavioural biases by creating a systematic, uh, dynamic asset allocation approach. So the team did a lot of work on on setting that up, thinking about what the governance of it ought to be. Uh, how do we make it efficient? How do we remove our personal biases as markets get really, you know, volatile uh, and overcome that to be to be systematic in that? So it's not about waiting for a market to get to an extreme and then putting a position on. It's saying, hey, if the market's gone down and it's and there's a gap between what we think value is and prices, then we will add exposure and we'll We'll be systematic about how we size that. Then if it goes down the following day, then we'll add some more. If it goes down the next day, then we'll add some more. But what's happened in that moment is that the last two days are now worth less. So we've got a we've got a mark-to-market PL loss. So it took quite a bit of of work with the investment committee and also with the board to approve that strategy because you know the darkest hour in that one is right before the dawn as you get further and further away from fair value and you've increased your position either in a, a long way or in a in a short way um your mark to market loss will be at its peak at the moment that at, at the moment where you forward looking have the have the highest expectation in terms of return so it takes a lot of work to be able to hold on to that you have to size it right uh to start with uh so that you don't get you avoid two things there's two really important things with the tilting strategy one is uh you don't you don't lose you bottle at the wrong time, and that's really critical because as soon as you've you've stopped out, you've lost that, and there's no hope of getting it back. The other is getting your sizing right so that you've got a reasonable uh, allocation of risk through the through the sort of different VP gaps 
And because the worst thing is to have used all your risk while the market is just being volatile beyond where you where you got your, your positions on. So that that took quite a bit of work uh, to get all that done. Uh, but we kicked that off in March 2009. And frankly, that was a good time to do it because if you draw the graph, that is the low point of the equity market. So we were we were very fortunate in terms of kicking it off there. It was interesting because we had said to the board, look, you know, we may be out of the money for a long period of time here. And we'll all have to, you know, hold hands and make sure that works. And then what happened was we put some positions on and the market immediately went off and the board said, oh, well, that was easy. Um, why don't you do some more? <laughs> yeah. And and from memory, I think one of the ways to sort of get the board along with this program was that you you had specific people on the board that were sort of selected to go in, in sort of a deep dive into this program so that they almost became spokespeople for this program on the board itself how has that developed over over the years did it once you had that initial success did they immediately became much more comfortable with it or have questions been raised during the years whether we should continue this yeah look i i think it's you know as boards change in terms of personnel it's always important to keep them up to date with what the genesis of a particular strategy was and what the basis for it is and how it connects with our endowments or our investment beliefs. It certainly has taken a lot of time for us, you know, keeping the board refreshed on how the thing works and how we expect it to work and why why in a model where once a when a when a market hits a particular level, we buy some exposure and then it goes down and then it goes down and then it starts coming back up. We will we will demonstrate that over time that should generate us a, a return, um, and so we've we've done a lot of work with the board on that. But absolutely, there are times when that will be tested. So if you fast forward to 2013, uh, we had a time when the the Kiwi dollar was very strong against, um, in particular the US, but other currencies as well. And what happened was in those days we had a our tilting program was really the Kiwi against like the world basket of currencies and and so what happened was we slope we increased the short position in the kiwi and it got very large like up to nearly 40 percent of the nav of the fund and that starts to create nervousness because to get to that short position as the kiwi continues to go up we're losing money each day on what we had put on yesterday and uh so that that really focused the mind of the board and of the investment committee and of the tilting team and everybody uh on on that position but we saw in the end that that you know the the kiwi reverted so there's a this is ultimately a mean reversion strategy we we expect things to revert to that that long run equilibrium at some point there'll obviously always be volatility um but it did and so we got through that but that that was a a real moment of tension uh, and one that required, you know, careful understanding of the basis for for the strategy. Step away from the positions and the P and L and all that sort of stuff. Go back and say, well, has the has the basis for the strategy? Does that still exist? Do we still believe in some long run value? Do we still believe in mean reversion? Uh, and then, if we've sized it correctly, then then we can we can survive it. So that's the key with these types of things. Is over time, we have increased the active risk allocated to that. We we doubled it a couple of times from the from the outset. But you always need to make sure that you size a strategy. I, I pinched this one from Cliff Asnes. Don't size a strategy so that if it goes wrong, you're dead. Because that's the 
you know, that's pretty fundamental. And so that's that's how we've thought about that. Get this get the sizing of the active risk budget right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I think uh we, we spoke in two thousand and nineteen, just after Willis Towers Watson did a review um yeah. of the fund and, and they brought this up. Um they basically said the tilting program is quite unique and perhaps the board should look at it and reconfirm whether they're comfortable with the amount of risk budget it takes up. And I think New Zealand uh, Super did that and they said, yes, we are comfortable with that. Did that sort of 2013 experience help with formulating uh, the thoughts around that query of, of Will Stiles Watson, where you basically, because you went through that exercise and got into a situation where it was quite um, uncomfortable, I suppose, uh, to hold yeah. that position, that it was then easier to state that you were comfortable with it a, a number of years later. Yeah, so a few things that happened, um, the team continues to develop that tilting strategy and and some things that happened. So very early on, if you go right back to the start of it, we just had sort of two levers. One was equities versus bonds, and we tilt that, and Kiwi versus you know all the other currencies, the, the trade-weighted um, index. And and so it was a pretty narrow strategy. And what the team always had intended to have happen was to increase the breadth of that strategy. So particularly in the currency side of things, we went from that Kiwi versus the basket to nine different currencies that we could tilt against each other. And so that was a really important change in the in the breadth of the strategy. Now that helped us a lot because then you reduce the amount of risk you've got on sort of one particular view of the equilibrium view of a current of two currencies of a pair of currencies and so uh so yes yeah, so i think all of that work helped when we came to that conversation with the with the board following the willis towers watson report to be able to say well this is how we think about this because at the same time as doing that we'd expanded the equity bond one to be I think we've got nine markets in both of those now, uh, and and we tilt equities versus cash and bonds versus cash and and bonds versus equities. So there's a there's a bit more breadth in that as well, and that gave us a bit more comfort. So and funnily enough, um, what that meant is that our our actual risk budget went down a little bit because because we ended up with a few more positions that were not perfectly correlated with each other. So all of that helped when it came to that discussion with the board to say, are we still confident in this? Because the amount of risk that we allocate to the tilting strategy is definitely the the highest amount of any of our internal strategies. But there is a lot of breadth in there across the different types of of tilting uh, asset class. Uh, But it also reflects our confidence in the strategy and critically its alignment with our endowments and our beliefs. So so that's why it gets more risk and that risk has turned out to be rewarded for us. So we've been very pleased with that. Yeah. And I think in recent years, it has also been expanded. I think commodities was added as one of the levers. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that and what is sort of uh, the plans going forward for this program? Yeah, so we've got uh, commodities in there as well as REITs. So we sort of took REITs out of out of the equities and, and thought about whether they might provide us with a different a different uh, exposure or a, a way of expressing views in a in a way that wasn't perfectly correlated with the other markets that we we're doing. So we did commodities in a pretty small way. Commodities is a bit trickier because you've got both levels and curves, and so there, there are sort of more variables, if you like. Uh, so. Really, the addition of that is a way of us learning a bit more about those markets. It has a very small amount of active risk. 
associated with it at the, at the moment and the, and the team are, are looking to learn a bit more about how how our models work in that situation our confidence in our models because in all of these different markets we have a differential level of confidence in you know our, our view of equilibrium or our view of how the how it might track over time and as a result of that ex, that sort of explicit level of confidence that will affect how much risk we allocate to it so um, what the team's looking to do is uh, thinking about, well, are there, other, are there other ways we could express this strategy? Are there different signals we might use? How do we think about, uh, how do we think about trading, for, uh, not necessarily frequency, but size positions? You know, this thing has evolved in the very early days. We just did it, we traded it once a month. Now the team trades it every day and, and sometimes a couple of times a day depending on which markets are, are open. Um, so the yeah, they continue the team continues to develop that to look for again more breadth uh, and ways that we can take advantage of our endowments in terms of that long horizon and and uh, as I say, a, a belief in that slightly more constant relative risk aversion. And how do you keep the costs under control if you trade multiple times a day? Yeah, so that's a debate that the team has uh, very every so often, which is what how do you think about that trade-off between position sizes and transaction costs? We keep the costs under control by by executing all of the the trades ourselves. So our portfolio completion team does those does those trades. We trade predominantly in futures. Sometimes there's some swaps, uh, but mostly it's futures. Uh, and yeah, there's an active an active discussion about how do we how do we make sure we've got the trade-off right between position size change and and transaction costs. Now, this program was in place before New Zealand Super embraced the the reference portfolio. Yeah. And um, I think that came in in about 2010. So the fund had already been operational for, or at least investing for at least seven years. Why that switch at that time? What what was the thinking behind introducing this reference portfolio? Yeah. So so we'd been we'd been looking at some of the work that had come out of Canada and thinking about that reference portfolio approach. And in those days, it wasn't actually, I don't think it was called total portfolio approach that's sort of been coined later. But you know, one of our firm beliefs is that uh, you should have some real clarity about whose decision is whose. So let's, let's be clear about um, who's making the big decision about the risk tolerance, which is obviously the board, uh, what the active risk budget should be in terms of the implementation of that portfolio, and then be able to you know, determine how how those big decisions have panned out. Uh, one of the challenges with an SAA approach is it's it's impossible to fully replicate the SAA. You can't you cannot ever be at the exact amount of the SAA, and so then you always have a little bit of a confusion about well, are you there because you didn't want to be, or are you there because uh, there's just not a it's not available? How do you think about those? What the 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 beauty of the reference portfolio approach approach is that there is real clarity about the decisions that are being made. So you've got the big one, which is what's the composition of the reference portfolio, uh, including the asset classes and the currency decision you make and the hedging decision. Then then the allocation of active risk to management in order to be able to manage that then says, okay, if we decide to invest in something, so let's buy a forest we are going to sell some part of the reference portfolio. So we'll sell some equities and some bonds that match the risk. Uh, we can we can tell exactly how that decision panned out because we know what the 
what the what the funding proxy was and we know what the what the asset return is so it's very clear um that you know when we make those decisions we we can we can determine how they how they went so there's this sort of that clarity of responsibility of decision and accountability for outcomes we we thought was important but it also helped with our team to be able to say we're not here to just if we've got 10% and allocated to this private market asset class you know call it timber or infrastructure um we're not just here to fill that up we're, we're we need to we need to only put assets into that opportunity if they're actually going to improve the outcomes for the total portfolio and so the idea of trying to get the team to think more clearly about what is it we're selling in order to buy this thing how, what is the relative attractiveness of a forest versus some private equity commitment versus some property development and how do we get them to think about that the reference portfolio really helps um, with underpinning that total portfolio approach and so that's so there was quite a lot of work went into that uh, before we implemented it and or agreed it with the board and then implemented it in 2010. And I think the reference portfolio has changed over the years uh, a couple of times. I, I can remember an instance where emerging markets was part of it and then yes. that was taken out again and there was an argument made for a more simple reference portfolio. Can you tell me a little bit about that evolution? Yeah, so some things have come and gone. I mean, emerging markets has always been in there, but but it's been in there. Uh, it, sometimes it was broken out. So we had global developed markets and global emerging markets with, with separate weights. And then we said, oh, well, let's just take the MSCI, you know, ACWI, and that has dynamic weight, if you like, between the emerging markets and the and the and the developed markets. So so it's always been in there, but it has been expressed differently. The other things that have been in there, so we've we've always had some New Zealand equity in there. Earlier on, we had a bigger when we, when the fund was smaller, we had a bigger proportion of New Zealand listed equities in the in the portfolio. That's that's now five percent, uh, which is still pretty chunky for a portfolio of our size. Uh, we had some uh, listed real estate in there for a while uh, in the portfolio. So so still actually in our annual report, you'll see. In some of the really longer term returns, you'll see a reference to to real estate in a reference portfolio um, calculation of performance. So that's because that was in there at, at some point. So so we've stuck to the idea that it is a simple notional passive portfolio. So global equities, New Zealand equities, and global fixed income, and then uh, and then this decision on how much we hedge it. And so the the decision. Uh, since we in, since inception has been that we hedge the the whole portfolio 100% back to New Zealand dollars, and that's a that's one that we always debate at, at a reference portfolio reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how close is the current portfolio to the reference portfolio? Oh, it's quite it's quite different to the reference portfolio. So there'd be thirty uh, something percent uh, liquids or unlisted assets in there and, and various different strategies so yeah a reasonable uh, a reasonable difference from the reference portfolio we have an active risk budget from the board of four percent expressed as a tracking error at the whole fund level and that's a reason that's quite a bit of rope for us to sort of um you know depart from the reference portfolio with the objective of beating the reference portfolio and we have been able to do that through those various strategies including including that strategic tilting one so um, yeah, so there's a there's a reasonable difference from the from the reference portfolio, and really, what the reference portfolio is doing is setting that long term risk appetite, and then giving uh, management the the leeway to go and deliver that 
uh, in a way using that active risk, which will which ought to beat that on a on a on a risk adjusted basis. So we're we're not we're, while we're taking active risk, any position that we that we add to the portfolio, we're going to sell something that keeps the total risk constant. That's what the aim is. Yeah, and you mentioned you have a reasonable chunky allocation to domestic equities, New Zealand equities. And I yeah. believe you manage them in house. Is is that right? And what? Why was that decision made to bring that in house? Yeah. So actually, we've just in the last few weeks, we've just gone over ten years of of doing that. So we haven't always managed them in house. Obviously, we had ten years uh, before we started doing that. Um, but um, why do we do that? So at the moment, we we manage it in house, but we also have two external managers uh, of New Zealand Active Equities. Interestingly enough, it's really the only place that we have active listed equity exposure is in relation to our New Zealand piece. We have in our global equities, we we have mostly passive, but we also have some factor mandates run by external managers. But in the domestic one is where we actually have sort of stock pickers, if you like. Um, why do we do it? Well, from the outset, as I said, we were pretty well, we were entirely outsourced. We had a number of external New Zealand managers. We we set up the the internal New Zealand team because we need we're we're a significant presence in the New Zealand market and we needed to have a way of properly engaging with that market as opposed to just oh well we've appointed these three external managers and they're they're doing it for us so if someone came and said to us well, what's your view on this stock we're like well we don't know because you know we're not managing it um, on an active basis so we needed really to step up our engagement with the domestic market and make sure that we were properly participating in those capital markets but also because we 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 held the view and still do that there is a there is a uh, positive expected alpha for the average um, New Zealand active manager which maybe says more about the benchmark than it does about the managers but you know nevertheless it's there uh, and so we 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 thought that that was something that we could do in house, uh, and and over time uh, that has proved to be the case. So that team has has done you know really well over the ten years it's been operating. Yeah, uh, internalisation is a big uh, uh, point of discussion as well here in Australia, where we have a number of funds that have gone down that route. Um, that they mainly do it for sort of capacity reasons as well as cost savings. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, you say you wanted to have a, a say in the market, have a, a former view. Um, does that mean that this will be the only asset class that will be internalized or are there plans to do that with other asset classes as well? Uh, so, yeah, so there are a few reasons. There was there was that, that reason to be able to engage. It was never really a cost one for us, but we did, it is a space that we thought that we could get the capability internally. And that's one of the big challenges with, you know, internalization is, the assumption is that you will be able to get the people internally that you need to do it as as effectively as those external managers that you might otherwise use. This is a place where we thought we would be able to do that. Capacity is an important one, though, too, because we had seen some change in our external managers in New Zealand over time. And so we ran a little bit of a risk that if we if if we lost one of them or if they fell below a conviction threshold for us and we took the mandate back, that it would be hard to replace that. So, so having an internal uh, team was able to, we were able to, you know, have a bit of flex in, in how we manage those external mandates. In terms of that internalization, yeah. So, what else do we do? Uh, we well, we have a portfolio completion team that that runs an internal credit ma- mandate, 
uh, called uh, we call it the tactical credit opportunities mandate. So that does that does things which look to take advantage again of our endowments and also the strength of our balance sheet. So that's an internal uh, that's an internal function. Uh, we have a direct investment team where we make direct investment in unlisted. Uh, unlisted assets, both in New Zealand and internationally. So that's something that we do alongside either external managers or other other asset owners uh, as partners. Uh, we um, we operate obviously the tilting team internally, uh, but we don't. We're not we're not wholesale looking to internalize a, a lot of things. Uh, we've always thought about you know why why would we do something versus have somebody else do it yes cost is a factor but it's not really the key driver for us we've thought about it as is it a critical risk function uh is there something that we need to manage a risk that we need to manage so that's why we created that portfolio completion team originally that is to manage liquidity so at the gfc we we needed to know what liquidity we had and how much we needed. Well, that was all being done by individual managers externally, and we didn't have really a view of it because we had no market facing team. So we created that. That's a that's a risk management function, but has turned into a into a value adding function. Or it's a place where you can't get alignment, and alignment is really what has driven tilting to be an internal strategy. It's very hard to get alignment with an external manager on that type of strategy. Uh, because of the the possibility that it is out of the money for an extensive period of time, and and that causes, uh, you know, agency issues with your your external agents. Yeah. Now another uh, topic that comes up uh, a lot these days is uh, uh, decarbonisation and climate change. And if we take a bit of a broader view, it comes down on the sustainable and, and sort of responsible in investment. Now I think New Zealand super already implemented uh, a responsible investment framework in 2006. That's, uh, I think, a time when people were still looking very differently at this space. Where did that uh, focus come from? So in our legislation, we've got we've got three bits to our mandate. Uh, maximise return without undue risk, uh, use best practice portfolio management and, and do it, uh, operate while avoiding prejudice to New Zealand's reputation as a responsible member of the world community. And so the original hook, if you like, for our responsible investment framework back in 2006 was that third one of, you know, avoid prejudice to New Zealand's reputation. What's been interesting over time as the world has evolved and the investment world has evolved is that those first two, maximise return without undue risk and best practice portfolio management, have both become increasingly important parts of responsible investment. We did a we did a big piece of work a couple of years ago. We called we called our resetting the RI compass, resetting the responsible investment compass, and we looked at looked at practices around the world and said, what is best practice portfolio management these days in relation to asset owners like ourselves? And and in fact, what we discovered there is best practice is absolute integration of responsible investment considerations and investment decision making over the long term. So, so, um, and then if you think about that maximised return without undue risk, that undue risk language became the, the key hook for our climate change investment strategy because we thought, you know, we're not getting paid for this. We're not compensated for that risk. It's therefore undue. So, so all of those bits have been important over diff at different times to how we've evolved that responsible investment framework from 2006 when we created that and we were founding signatories of UNPRI to the RI Compass work, which has led to our sustainable finance 
strategy and uh, our climate change investment strategy, which has led us down the uh, decarbonisation route in terms of the broader portfolio. And I think New Zealand Super has also put itself in a as a, a, a guiding light for some of the regional funds um, in the Pacific. And I'm thinking especially on sort of uh, that there was a program where you, you basically invited them to co-invest with uh, New Zealand Super in, in a, a private equity program. Can you tell us a little bit about how New Zealand Super looks at that position, you know, trying to help out the, the, the funds in the region? Yeah, so that one is sort of, from an asset owner perspective, there's no there's no downside to us to helping our our friends in the region, you know, lift their capability and understanding of particular issues or strategies. Uh, and so we've been involved in the Pacific Island Investment Forum for a while. The fund that you referred to around co-investment was a was a domestic one where we're uh, we've entered into a co-investment relationship with a a private equity fund that we helped uh, sponsor the establishment of, which is a, a number of different Māori tribes. So different iwi uh, invest in that uh, in that vehicle, and we have co-invested with that with that vehicle in domestic transactions. We've had great benefit from knowledge sharing with our you know our big peers around the world i think of the you know the canadian funds and the swedish funds and the and the singaporean funds gic and tomasic uh and and they've all been very generous in in helping us and there's a there's a really nice um dynamic there where uh asset owners will will assist others because it it doesn't hurt them but it helps the overall system to to lift the general capability, and so we we feel that uh, in relation to our domestic and also our our uh, broader Pacific cousins, and uh, and happy to help them too. Yeah, if we look a little bit into the future, I think New Zealand Super at some stage will go in a drawdown mode, and I think the government has had plans to start drawing down on the fund in twenty thirty five around that time. And that will mean that the fund will probably reach its peak size in 2070. How do you sort of prepare for that change? Yeah, so the um, the way our legislation works is it's got a it's got a formula in it, which was a you know hats off to the people that drafted that because it was a fantastic bit of drafting. Anyway, that formula is is the way that it gives effect to the legislation's desire to have us smooth out the long-term cost of uh, New Zealand national superannuation. And Treasury keep a model. They they maintain the model of that formula and they publish that on their website. So anyone can go and have a look at it. You just type in, um, you know, New Zealand super fund model and you can open the Excel spreadsheet. You can change the assumptions. You can, you know, play around with it. If you're finding it hard to go to sleep, you can do that. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, but it, it is very interesting, and so that will change depending on what the our returns have been, what the sort of forecast view of GDP growth is, what our long run returns are, that type of thing, or what contributions are. And so, at the moment, what that model is saying, and that's updated uh, once or twice a year by Treasury, is that in about twenty thirty five, we'll go from receiving contributions, contributions decline through to then, to start paying money back to the government. Uh, to to smooth out that cost, those those withdrawals, if you like, are relatively small to start with, and then by the time you get to about twenty fifty, they're a bit chunkier. Uh, but the way the model works is that we will continue to grow in nominal terms. Our forecast expected returns are higher than the than the 
than both the tax uh, leakage and the and the withdrawals. Uh, we will peak on the current modelling at a as a percentage of GDP about 2080, but we'll continue. We should continue to grow in nominal terms beyond that. So that that's where that very long horizon comes from. So what does that mean for us? It means that there will be some change. Uh, we will start to see some liquidity draw in about 12 years' time. It won't be big to start with. Uh, and so something that we need to think about there is we is we'll have, you know, we'll have three more iterations of of reference portfolio reviews before then to think about what does that do to us in terms of our view. We'll we'll have um, some some liquidity requirements. We'll have to produce liquidity each year, obviously, to to make those uh, payments, uh, and that may change our risk profile a little bit. So. Don't know what that looks like at the moment. That's going to be something for the the team to work out over the next twelve years as we as we go through that. So we've got a a twenty twenty five reference portfolio review, then another one in twenty thirty, and then you know another one and based on the current scheduling. Anyway, um, it, we do that roughly every five years. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that that changes our our, our tolerance. Now, another part of sort of looking into the future is uh, there's a lot of talk these days about uh, artificial intelligence with ChatGPT. Um, and I was interested to see that in the annual report that uh, came out over last year, there's a paragraph in there that New Zealand Super has been experimenting with sort of an AI portfolio. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about that or is that still uh, in early stages? Yeah, no, I can talk about that. So it's, it's a more of a sort of machine learning portfolio. So we're... we're what what that portfolio is? It's a New Zealand equities portfolio, and uh, we've uh, the one of the team has been uh, has built a model to to effectively uh, construct a portfolio of New Zealand equities that maximises factors that that we believe will be rewarded over you know subsequent periods, uh, and then uh, and then you know rerun that model on a regular basis and do the trades based on on what the model is telling us it's pretty small at the moment so we've just got a we've got um i think the number at the moment is about 30 or 40 million dollars uh, allocated to that but we are actually running the portfolio it's a, it's different from you know running a notional one where you're actually saying oh well what what what's the impact of transaction costs what's the impact of market spreads the actual impact of running this and 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 we're watching it as it goes, and we're learning from that as we go. So it's quite a it's quite a um, neat little project uh, that quite a few people have been involved in internally, and it's giving us a, a, a an alternative, if you like, an alternative access point for the New Zealand market. Uh, so we've got obviously our internal active, we've got this small machine learning portfolio, and then we've got a couple of external. So we've got we've we've got different ways to access that that local market and and also but just to learn along the way that's really what it's doing for us yeah so do you think that will become over time a substantial part of the portfolio or is it more an experiment still oh it's still an experiment at the moment but i but i expect if you know if you get some comfort around how how it operates yes that will be um i i expect that probably uh even in some of the other work that we do around around our Currency hedging or our um, completion of the portfolio using derivatives, we might we might see some some use of of AI techniques and those as well from an optimization perspective. Yeah, yeah. So the fund uh, has had a good experience in the last twenty years. It's uh, in a good position to tackle the next twenty years. 
but I believe that uh, you're gonna uh, leave the position at the end of the year to have somebody else take it over after right. nearly 15 years with the fund. What's in store for you? Uh, well, I'm planning to go to the beach at the end of the year and <laughs> stay there for a while. That's my plan. Uh, I haven't, I haven't got anything. I'm not going to a role at the moment. So, um, yeah, I'm really just uh, looking forward to spending a bit of time at the beach and getting a, an opportunity to think about what might, what might come next uh, after, after, as you say, 15 years here and, and five years in the in the CEO role. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be uh, very interested in how the how the fun how the fun goes. Yeah. Do you have any sort of favorite memories uh of that time uh yeah look i um well i i arrived uh in may 2008 and so the world at that point that was after bear stearns but before lehman and i was looking after private markets and so that was a really interesting position to be in to watch the you know sort of observe the what was then the credit crunch turn into the gfc and the and the carnage that ensued uh and being in the private markets was a little bit uh, you know, private markets just are smoother as a result of you know, only measuring them once a year. Um, so it was a little bit less of a of a crisis than what was going on in public. But that was a great opportunity for me to learn. And then, so so right out of the blocks, I got I got some pretty good lessons in in how to think about portfolio construction. Uh, we had a ten year anniversary. We created a, a super fund ukulele orchestra that was pretty awesome. That was twenty thirteen. <laughs> Uh, 2016, we hosted the International Forum of Sovereign Wealth Funds here, and the most memorable bit about that is that the final dinner was uh, was the night when the presidential election was being uh, reported, and so that had quite a big impact on that dinner. In fact, um, almost everyone at, at the International Forum of Sovereign Wealth Funds can remember that particular meeting in Auckland because of that of that moment. And then, look, I think. Um, the the last few years have been interesting. That you know, early 2020, I had a radio interview where I was telling the the interviewer that we'd just gone from 48 billion to 35 billion, and uh, as a result of that big drawdown in in Feb March 2020, and actually actually the ability to say that without the sky completely falling in was a testament to the work that we'd done about that sort of stakeholder management I talked about right at the start, educating people why we took the risk and what could happen along the way. Um, since since then, obviously, the market rebounded, which was which was great. We we're up to $65 billion. Uh, We've got a, about 200 people. When I started, we had 40, but there are still quite a few people from when I started who are still here, which is a, which is a testament to what a great place to work here is. And then most recently, the fund got named uh, Best Performing Sovereign Wealth Fund in the World for the, for the last 10 years. So that was, um, you know, that was very exciting and a, and a great recognition of the of the awesome work that the, the people here do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember uh, doing an interview a while ago with uh, Bob Maynard, who uh, was the CIO of uh, a state pension fund in the US, uh, the Idaho uh, Pension yeah. Fund. And I asked him a question around, you know, which other funds do you look at? And he said at that time, oh, New Zealand Super, their returns are just magical. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a testament to the great work you guys have done. So congratulations again on 20 years. It was great having a, a bit of a historical uh, view on it and the development. So thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best uh, in whatever new role you might end up in. Well, thank you very much, Wado. And we've we've appreciated our relationship over the years with I3. Uh, you've had 
Uh, you've had a lot of contact with the team here, and uh, been it's been a, a very helpful forum for us again to sh to share the knowledge because I think that is one of the one of the great things about about asset owners is this this willingness to share, and I've been a great beneficiary of that, and so uh, you know, long may that continue. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.